everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, Discovery. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad that you're here today. Uh, it's good to be together. I'm glad that uh, this time of year, that no matter where you're coming from, no matter what's going on in your life, that we can gather together and share something. Um, glad you're here. Our teaching today is anchored in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And it says this, But there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born to us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Anytime you crack open the Bible, especially into the Old Testament, you read stuff like this and you're like, land of Zebulun and Naphtali and breaking things like Midian. What is going on right now? And we are just now beginning this new series. Some of these verses you might have picked up right away and have said, oh, that's, that's Christmas. Those are Christmas verses. And that's right. Um, we are kicking off our Advent season here at Discovery. Uh, partly, and we'll talk about this more towards the end, partly because we love this time of year to just highlight who are our local and global partners, what's the work that they're doing, and how can we be a part of what's going on there. And to make sure that we had enough time to address them all, we're starting Advent a couple weeks early around here. Um, but if we're really going to get into the heart of what's going on in these, in these Christmas verses in Isaiah, if we're going to understand what's going on, I want to start in a slightly different place. Uh, real quick by raise of hand, this has been like one of my favorite social experiences this, uh, this week. Who has heard the name Ernest Shackleton? Just raise your hand real quick. Wow, this is amazing. Okay, uh, everything I'm about to share is going to be like solid, like C plus type of sharing. I say that only because Liam Neeson has, has uh, done the voiceover for a documentary on this whole story that I'm about to share with you. For those of you that raised your hands, I hope... Uh, that your heart leapt when you heard me say Ernest Shackleton, because if you know that story, everything in you goes, oh my gosh, yes, like this guy. So you're about to get a substandard version to Liam Neeson's of 
This guy's story, it's amazing. Ernest Shackleton, this is immediately as, uh, as World War I is getting kicked off. There had been all these expeditions to figure out where's the South Pole. And the Norwegians, the freaking Norwegians, they found the South Pole. Um, but no one yet had gone across the continent of Antarctica. Nobody had dared to take that on yet. So this wily guy, his name's Ernest Shackleton, captain, later to be called Sir Ernest Shackleton, um, British explorer, had been to Antarctica a handful of times, but he decides to take, take up this call to raise the money and to go as World War I is kicking off. It's amazing. Gets together a crew of 27, and they head off for Antarctica. Now, I want to share with you, here, here's what they were wanting to do. Here was the point of this mission. Give me this map here, Melissa. Um, so how it was supposed to work, this red line kind of up at the top, they were supposed to drop down into Antarctica and then this blue line cutting across Antarctica. You can tell that they're like, we want to do this as efficiently as possible, <laughs> like shortest distance between two points. Uh, they're going to hit the South Pole and then another boat called the Nova, which for those of you that love the Ernest Shackleton story, if you've heard it, look up the, US, the, the Nova. Oh my goodness, it's its own amazing story. But a second boat would have already gone ahead of them, had beaten them to the South Pole, and then on their way back to their boat had left caches of food and supplies for them. So once they got to the South Pole, now they had more waiting for them. That was the plan. That's how we're going to get across the never-done the never continent of Antarctica. Now, for those of you that know the story, uh, it depends on how you look at it. Is this a story that ends in disaster? Or is it the opus of one of the greatest examples of human perseverance and endurance ever told? Here's what happens to Ernest Shackleton. On December 5th, and keep these dates in mind, number one up on this map. Give me that next map, Mel. Number one on this map, December 5th, 1914, the Endurance is the name of their ship. It departs for Antarctica. On January 18th, number two, as they're going in, and it's January in Antarctica, so it's the dead of summer down there, their boat gets stuck in some ice. Now, it's the dead of summer, and so the thought is, it's okay for right now. We'll keep chipping away at it. The sea's going to bust some stuff loose. We're going to keep getting our ship to the point where it's supposed to go. But as summer in Antarctica weighs on, they find themselves at November 21st, number three on that map. January 18th to November 21st. Their ship that has been stuck in the ice that entire time on November 21st, is crushed by the ice and sinks to the bottom of the sea. Part of what makes this story so amazing is when you hear it, you can't help but put yourself in the shoes of these guys. It had been, you know, 10 months of hanging out on Antarctica, super fun and tropical in the summer, as they're fighting for their lives, eating provisions that they were not supposed to be eating, still cast, having a vision cast by their captain, we're still going to do this. We're just waiting for the boat to knock loose. Every night in some of their journals that they kept, they would tell stories of you could hear the ice just slowly crushing the boat, like right out of the gate. It would just groan. And they were like, it was like listening to a large animal slowly dying. That's how, that's how we went to bed every night. I can't imagine the feeling watching it, the mast go underwater and just like looking to my captain, Ernest Shackleton, being like, what are we going to do now? If we stay here, if we accept the world of the shipwreck, we're going to die. 
we have to try and get to open ocean. Over the course of this time, from number two to number three, the ice had captured the endurance, the big ship, and the ice had just moved it all of that distance, which on a map is like, that's nice. It's Antarctica. Like, that's a massive amount of distance that the ice has moved this boat. But they find themselves at number three going, what do we do? It is a lot of ice and a lot of Antarctica. If you've ever seen a documentary on, on Everest, ice is not safe to travel on. You need a lot of technical equipment. And these guys were relatively trained, but no one had ever done this before. And they find themselves trapped, not totally sure exactly where they are, but realizing we have to make a, a try for open ocean. So they get all these supplies that they've rescued off their ship over the last 10 months. From November of 1915 to April of 1916, the crew camps on this drifting ice. Rowboats, um, just, just camping underneath rowboats as their tent, which is not super warm, as it turns out. Uh, as, as they get to this point where they're like, I don't know that this ice is going to move us anymore. I think we're stuck. They realize we've got to do the rest of this on foot. And they start dragging these boats behind them towards open ocean. This is where the story just continues to escalate. They make it which in and of itself is a miracle. They make it to open ocean, and they think, based off of the instruments they have that at this point have now been freezing for over a year, they think they can make a shot in open ocean towards Elephant Island, which is number seven here on your list. I don't know if you've ever stood on a beach looking out at the ocean, but unless you can see an island and where you're going, if you're just like, it's generally that way, by the way, our lives depend on it, and it's Antarctica, you're going to have some major guts to get in a boat and say, let's go. And in three lifeboats that they've drug across the ice, 27 men get in these boats and hope for Elephant Island. And they make it. It's amazing. But the problem, and they knew this ahead of time with Elephant Island, is that no one ever goes to Elephant Island. It's not even close to a shipping route. And so that was just step three of this daring escape plan that they have from Antarctica. There's one more step. Someone has to get in a boat and take that boat to South Georgia Island, where there's a whaling station. That's 800 miles away in a raft in the ocean in Antarctica with instruments that have now been freezing for a year and a half. You've got to have some guts. And who gets in this boat? Ernest Shackleton and four other dudes. And they make their way. And they make it. Three days on open ocean. Now the problem that they didn't foresee is that the side of the island they hit, which they must have just kissed the ice on that ground so hard, like stuck to, the, stuck to the metal pole type of. But the problem is that Elephant, or, um, South Georgia Island, the whaling station is on the north side, and coming from Elephant Island, you land on the south side. So they have two options. Either we take the 150-mile journey by boat around to the other side of the island, and at this point, their boat, it's a raft, is so screwed up, there's no way that they're going to make that journey. So really, their only option is that they have to cross this island covered in ice, like it's crazy, with peaks that are at least 3,000 meters tall. 
and they decide for the sake of weight, we're not going to take sleeping bags with us, the most significant source of warmth, because you can't cut down trees in Antarctica, because there's none. We're not going to take those because they're too heavy. And if it takes us too long to get there, if we find ourselves a cave and we get too cozy, all of our guys back on Elephant Island who we left behind, who we said we were going to come back for, they're going to die. Maybe the guys who we left on the other side of South Georgia Island are going to die. Three guys decide we're going to make this trek across South Georgia Island. And they make it. From there, Ernest Shackleton, they have what I'm sure was the best meal of their lives that night. Shackleton gets on the first boat that he can that takes him up to Chile. He gets to Chile, Chile, and gets on another boat, goes back down to Elephant Island, rescues the rest of his crew. They re- they're rescued on June of 1916. They began their journey December of 1914. Over two years. That's amazing. All 27 survived. It's an incredible story. And man, if I were Liam Neeson right now, you would be in tears. It was so good. (laughs) An Irishman reading all that? Are you kidding me? It's worth looking up. August 30th, 1916. All 27 are rescued. A thousand miles of drifting on the ice with their boat, followed by a three-boat journey to Elephant Island, an 800-mile trip to South Georgia Island, starvation, health, Sickness, freezing, despair, eating everything from seals to seagulls to the dogs we loved that were supposed to pull our sleds across the continent. And thanks to Shackleton, who had, had to have the best photographer, Frank Hurley, we have some really incredible moments from this trip that have been captured. Here's a couple of them. Meet the Endurance. Actually had a different name. Um, Shackleton changed the name, and in the end is one of the legendary things that he did on this trip. Give me that next photo. This boat gets stuck in the ice, like we said, and so at first they're like, well, it's summertime, we'll just wait for the ice to unthaw. So playing soccer, football, out on the ice, no big deal. Gramophones playing to penguins, that's hilarious, I think. Like, you're so bored that you're like, let's just see what they think about Mozart, you know? (laughs) Apparently they like it. But you can start to see, you know, they started out with canvas tents. The winds of Antarctica were not super kind to almost everything that they brought. Give me that next one. As this boat is stuck in the ice, the further it drifts, drifts a thousand miles on the ice, the more that ice tilts it this way and that way and crushes it until eventually this is what it looked like when the ice finally just absolutely crushed the ship. Give me that next one. And this is a photo that I love. What do you think when you see this photo? Can you see the desperation in them? If we stay here with the shipwreck, we're gonna die. We have to try for open ocean, but we might also die. Straining at the ropes, that Shackleton there on the left, hoping that they can make it. They drug three. What a brilliant photo by Frank Hurley. You can leave that photo up for a bit, Mel. I love stories of survival, of perseverance, is why I think as humans we love stories like Shackleton's. We all need hope. We all know what it's like to feel the pain and the darkness of the shipwreck. 
That's one thing I love about this whole story that we talk about every time we're together. That no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, we all experience darkness, a lack of peace in the world. And I love this God of the Bible. He just doesn't deny pain. He, he doesn't discount it. He acknowledges it. And in fact, the God of Scripture chooses to work within it. So many faith systems engage the pain of the world by telling you that you need to transcend above it or that you need to escape it. But the God of Scripture invites us to follow Him as He enters directly into it, to engage it head on. And to my warrior heart, for the deep desires in me for justice, man, that's a good story. Tell me more. This time of year, there are some classic passages that we like to read around Advent. Um, and for those that might be new to that word, Advent is just a term. It's a season, really, in a church calendar that says, hey, as we're getting ready for December 25th, what would it be like if that's a unique moment in history for us to uniquely prepare our hearts for it, to look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ? This Advent, we'll be honing in on Isaiah 9, and today we're beginning a new sermon series called Prince of Peace. In our Isaiah passage, it's one of the titles that's given to this idea of hope. And in particular, in a world filled with wars, every night um, I pray with my kids, and every morning when we drive to school, we pray. And my six-year-old, for almost two years now, has been praying for peace in Ukraine. Ugh! When this thing in Israel broke out, we've been praying for Israel. And it's one thing to like experience the darkness and you know, we're like appropriate with what we share with our kids, but um, my six-year-old sees darkness in the world and with confusion, it's like, God, like, what's taking so long? It's tumultuous the world that we live in, whether that's economically, whether that's global medicine, the particular title, Prince of Peace, should strike us as a little bit puzzling, if not troubling. What does the Bible mean about this character called the Prince of Peace, and where is he? Who is he? What does his peace look like, and can we get in on it? Because so much of the world seems so dark. So let's dive into our teaching for today. I want to look at these verses one more time, and we'll bust it up a little bit so that we can wrap our heads around what's really going on. Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied a nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders and is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually. And there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Okay, again, you might be like, hey, thanks for reading a second time. Still a little confused about what's going on. Let's talk about this a little bit. Here's a map of northern Israel back in the day. And if you're newer to the study of Scripture, uh, Israel really was a group of 12 tribes. It was, it was a family. And as they moved into the region, to the geography of Israel, each son of this family was given a particular part that was kind of like, here's ours. This is where our crew lives. And we all as a family live in Israel. The land of Naphtali, you can see right here on top, and the land of Zebulun. I know it looks like water. It's not. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, and I just want it's it's so fun to look, make sure you just remember in the back of your mind where Capernaum is and where Nazareth is. Those are important cities, as we'll get to in a minute. So this is geography. This is just simple geography. Now, we're going to go back to about the year seven, somewhere in the 700s, middle to late 700s B.C., and Israel hasn't been doing great for a while. They've had king after king, most of them relatively bad, if not extremely bad. And as God has continued to send his prophets, like Isaiah, and, and if you're new to church and faith, you might be like, here we go, we're talking about prophets again. Um, God was really just sending people to the kings and to the country to say, you're forgetting who I am and what I'm about, that I am a God of peace, that I am a God of goodwill, that I am a God with desire for you. I'm jealous. And as he sends these prophets, they just continually get ignored. And as happens in the world of consequence, when you get to choose between health and unhealth, you can only choose unhealth for so long before something gets really sick or something starts to die. And so as it turns out, as these people choose over and over again, not God, the neighboring country to the north, which is Assyria. Assyria was brutal, man. They, they were such an incredible war experience in, in world history. Give me that next slide. Assyria invades. And the first dominoes to fall as they come into Israel are the lands of Naphtali and the lands of Zebulun. Like a spear tip, they're headed right for the heart of Jerusalem. As the story unfolds, as this passage unfolds, I think there's some key things that I, I want to make sure we understand about this. This is the time and the group of people that Isaiah is speaking to. This is the world that they're in. And so it's really important now as we read Isaiah 9 to understand if he's addressing the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, why are they experiencing darkness? What's so bad about their current situation? There are people who have just experienced invasion. In this day and age, you carried away slaves if you were the winning party, and so the Assyrians have taken people's family members. It is dark. We have a people of burden, a people under a yoke of oppression, literally being carried away with yokes on their shoulders and chains around their wrists and ankles. A people, whether you're captured or whether you still have a home, you're fearing the tramping boots of warriors. And you're oftentimes, as you can see in the news today in Israel, 
looking at t-shirt after t-shirt soaked in blood. It just feels so honest, this passage. I can relate to these people. The world I live in feels like this kind of a world. I may not be living in Israel. I'm not in Gaza. I'm not in Kiev. But the pain that I experience and the frustration and the anger of the injustice of it all, all of the injustice, I can relate to that. It's all so jacked up. It feels like a shipwreck. What is it about us that refuses to acknowledge that things like war and poverty and pain are normal parts of the human experience? We just won't settle for that. There's something in every single one of us, no matter what you believe, that screams, this isn't right. For some of us, we experienced life as very young kids as being really wonderful until something shattered it. Some of us never got that experience. And since we've been kids, all we've seen is a world around that is filled with poverty and pain. This particular word from Isaiah. Mid to late 700s B.C. is talking about the coming of a king who will liberate these areas again, who will kick out these invaders. And there's pretty high promises that Isaiah attaches to this guy. There's four titles given. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And it's so interesting as we read into that because the cause for joy is not so much a pending military victory. They could just as easily have said that, hey, there's a king who's going to come, and when he's full grown, he's going to wipe out the bad guys. That's not where the hope of this passage comes from. The hope of this passage comes from the birth of this new ruler in whose wake such victory will come in its due course. But the juxtaposition here is that it's as if Isaiah or God through him is saying who this king is will bring about peace, not merely what he does. And this king, to call a king a wonderful counselor or a prince of peace, that would actually be really common in this day and age. This person would not be the only one, even in the region, that would have those titles. But to say that this king will be called mighty God or everlasting father, those would be terms that would make anyone scratch their heads. You're saying that this is a human king, but a God king. In the world of mythology, you can fudge some lines and make this work really easily. But Israel doesn't deal in mythology. Israel deals with monotheism. There is only one God. Are you telling me that he is going to come down and be the king? How do we make sense of this passage? And before we prematurely jump to the conclusion of Jesus as the answer, I just think it's so important to stay in the mindset of these people. What they would have originally been thinking and feeling as they heard this word They would long for this king. They would hold these words up like a filter to each king who was being born. And until one came along that met all the criteria, they knew that peace wasn't ready to come quite yet. Can you feel the angst? They would pray for this king to arrive every day. They would yearn for him. The chief desire and the waiting man. (laughs) It's so hard. 
As a fun invite, our midnight mass service this Christmas Eve will be all about the season of waiting. So come back that night, 11.30 at the nighttime, and it will be a hoot. Waiting provokes desire. It provokes longing. Just like it did in Shackleton's men, the longer we sit staring at the shipwreck, the more we long for the open ocean. The longer we have to try to survive, the more we are excited again to re-enter a society of peace and goodness. Then, in this story, when almost all hope had faded, a teenage girl and her fiancé rode into Bethlehem still under a rod of oppression and under the boots of the Roman Empire for a government-imposed census. They gave birth to a son there, a son who through his dad could claim lineage from the royal line of Israel. I'm sure that the writer of what we're about to read in a second, his name was Matthew, who penned one of the stories of Jesus that we have in our Bibles today, was absolutely mind-blown when he played back the tape of where Jesus' ministry began. Because although he was from Nazareth, Jesus, when he begins his ministry, Matthew records in chapter 4 an intriguing piece of geography. Here's Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, talking about Jesus. He left Nazareth and he made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, Land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's not hard to picture Matthew penning a historical fact that Jesus had set up shop in Capernaum as the epicenter of where his ministry would begin, and then realizing Capernaum. That's significant. Someone has has talked about that. Something important is supposed to happen there. Can you picture his eyes getting wider and wider as he tracks down and finally lays eyes on the scroll of Isaiah 9? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, We've been waiting. Only Jesus could take all four of those titles. And the kingdom of heaven, finally, it's arriving. And sure enough, as he completed those verses, his heart must have just been exploding as he realized what message Jesus was preaching right from the start. Repent. Come home. Come back to God, for his kingdom is arriving The invasion is being turned back. The boots of the thing that has oppressed you, things that have soaked you in your own blood, the burdens that you have been forced to carry, the time has come. It's on. A new kingdom is dawning, and with it, I am here with peace as my anthem of my new kingdom. Oh, man, Matthew was just like on fire. Now, there's no doubt, to be clear, even for Matthew, that this kingdom had not fully arrived yet. Even as he was writing these words, it was surely in a time after Jesus had ascended to heaven and the Roman Empire was still in occupation of the land of Naphtali and in the land of Zebulun. But man, 
despite the fact that the power of this Roman Empire was just as intense as ever, still the injustice, still the oppression, they were all rampant. There were glimmers of light. Amidst the cries, there was a song. Amidst the blood, there was healing. Jesus had begun a movement that was and still is in process of changing the word. Isaiah 9-7 says, His authority shall grow continually. It had been planted and it was budding, but even for Isaiah, it will start, but it will continue. It was a movement that invited us to forgive as we had been forgiven. It was a movement where we're invited to love our enemies. It was a movement that said selflessness, not self-preservation, was the way of life. And particularly because of what he did on the cross. The way he made it possible for anyone's sins to be forgiven, no matter what they had done, no matter what had been done to them, the people who had walked in darkness were and are seeing a great light. It's particularly because his kingdom has not fully come yet that what we do in the meantime matters so much. It's no wonder that after spending time with Jesus, his students began asking him some questions. How are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to live in between worlds? We're living in the world of the shipwreck but we're supposed to be of the kingdom of peace. What are we supposed to do? In Matthew 6, 9, the way that they phrase that question is, how should we pray? What should we pray for? What should be the heart behind it? And Jesus so kindly, the God of the universe, this is so funny to me. They're like, how do we talk to God? And Jesus is like, we're doing it right now. Here's a prayer you can pray. These are just the first couple lines. Pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Kingdom come. We're supposed to long for it. After addressing God, his title, who he is, and the relational compassion of a father that is between us, the next line that we're supposed to pray is that we are invited to long for the kingdom to come fully. Do, do we long for it? Do we think about it? When we read the news or scroll our feeds, do we anguish in the darkness of the world we are in? Or do we acknowledge, as Jesus does, that while that darkness is real, there is something else something more real. And this has been such a fun week for me because this image of the boat, put that image back up there, Mel. I really thought this is where we were headed for this week. I just, I really love this photo so much. <laughs> but there was a problem as I continued to hold this photo in tension with our teaching today. Because Shackleton was trying to escape the wreckage for open ocean. He longed for escape and man, there are so many people of faith, there are so many Christians who I think falsely understand this story the same way. Jesus was bringing the open ocean to the wreckage. Instead of pulling the boat, he's pulling the sea. He's pulling freedom and justice and peace 
And in the midst of it all, he would have the audacity to throw us a rope and say, hey, jump in and join me. It like blew my mind. I had to like do some work to be like, what's a better picture for this? And I found this one. It's these kids in Mozambique that when they go fishing, they'll have a boat take the net out, but then usually a line of kids, teenagers, will pull that line back in. If you want a good picture of Jesus today, as we head into Advent, it's not a Jesus escaping and helping us escape the world of the shipwreck to go find open water somewhere, hopefully. The story of Jesus is one that says, I will stand with you in the shipwreck, and while I do, I am beckoning open ocean and rescue to us. Hold still. It's coming. This is prayer that we join Jesus in his longing and in his work to bring the open ocean to the shipwreck. Like Shackleton, it feels dark and it feels cold. It may even feel hopeless as we consider who we're going to lose along the way. But ocean, open, open ocean is promised. The kingdom of peace, the kingdom of Jesus, it's promised. That's where our citizenship lies. So often the problem with prayer and with peace is that we get confused on where our citizenship is. Am I a citizen of this world, this kingdom, where war and pain and death and tears, that those are the most real thing? We are all tempted to believe that that's true. And the reality is those things are true. War and pain and death and tears, those are real. But according to this story, they are not the most real things. There is something more true than all of that. Something that will outlast, something that will defeat, that will reclaim all of those real things. This kingdom is where our true citizenship is. And we get to live under the really real reality of the kingdom of light and the kingdom of today. If that kingdom is more real than this one, then this one is just merely on a ticking clock. It's not going to last. The boots and the blood-soaked shirts are going to be burned. So we don't engage the lack of peace in this world as the most real thing. Instead, we plead for, we long for, and we wait for the really real kingdom that is perfect peace with a prince that governs perfectly to arrive and to finish what he's begun. We are not looking to escape this world. Quite the opposite, in fact. We join with a Jesus who seems to really love this world and every person in it. And we pray that his kingdom would come and that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. Peace. As I wrap up for my part this morning, I just want to invite you to stop in the lobby at some point this month. Uh, our team has been working really hard to just highlight our local and global partners. And there's cards that are out there on those stands. Look at those cards. But then look beyond those cards. Look at the ways that these people who are on these cards, how their ministries are simply joining with God as he pulls the ropes of the kingdom down. Pray for their leaders. Pray for the hearts of their volunteers that they would not cave in to the cold and the dark, but that they'd keep following their captain into what's really real. If you're a parent, or if you're walking with someone who's new in their faith and trying to figure it out, know that this is a great opportunity to talk about faithfulness and the beauty of taking part in a work that God is doing in this world.
For those with, ki- with kids or with somebody like that, you could even consider having your kids pick up one in lieu of a present of their own. Help them remember to pray for that ministry. Help them to take their own spot on the ropes. Not to strain under their own power, but to lean into the power and purposes of a God who's already at work. And in it all, consider your citizenship. Where is home? And if your home is the kingdom of Jesus, if your home is connection with the creating Father God, how do your words uttered in prayer speak blessing and love and kindness and peace over a world that is suffering for all of those things to come about? Isaiah tells us that Jesus is, amongst many things, the Prince of Peace. And in a world that is in desperate need, the invitation today is to join him in your longing, in your desire, in your words, that you would pray for his kingdom to come. Pray for open ocean, not that we would escape, but that as promised, that it would continue to invade the shipwreck of this broken world as open ocean brings freedom to a world covered in ice. Pray for the open ocean. We're going to spend some time now just to respond to this. And this could be a time where you just go, I'm, I'm going to just consider, I'm going to stay seated. Um, these songs have been chosen today to just engage our longing for that open ocean. So for those who are able um, and for those who want to, let's stand and sing together.